The Massachusetts Bay Company may have hoped to escape English interference by moving its charter to America, but it didn't. The colony had enemies in England. In part, that was because of rival colonial interests who felt that their patents hadn't been respected. In part, it was because the colony's leadership was so closely connected to some of England's most contentious political figures, people like the Earl of Warwick. And in part, it was because the Browns, Martin, Gardner, and Ratcliffe were actively agitating back home. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. In 1632, the people exiled from New England were complaining about the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They accused the colonists of intending rebellion, of having cast off their allegiance to the English church, and of employing ministers and leaders who encouraged sedition and rebellion. They said that the colony's administrators sought independence from the crown and the laws of England. Gorges and his associate John Mason were endorsing Massachusetts's exiles, even though Mason was somewhat more sympathetic to the Puritan cause than Gorges was. He had, however, had a grant for the territory between Salem and Merrimack. Gardner wrote a report on the conditions in New England, and the group compiled other papers to submit to King Charles's Privy Council. At the end of December 1632, the Privy Council had appointed a committee of the who's who of English elites to look into the colony to see how the patents were granted and if they were being followed. They wanted to know how the plantations were actually operating and if the accusations were true. The committee interviewed whatever witnesses were available, including Salt and Stall and Craddock, and sought written reports. Captain Wiggins submitted an emphatic report supporting the colony, emphasizing Winthrop's good character and saying that the colony had a great potential to help meet England's need for naval supplies. New England had great timber, hemp, and flax, and industrious settlers. England's supplies at this point relied on the Baltic, and if that were ever cut off, they would need New England. On January 19th, the Privy Councilors sent a report supporting the Bay Colony to the Privy Council. The report lauded the colony's benefit to the kingdom and its profitability to investors. The Privy Council approved the report and informed the colonists that the king felt that their actions appeared justified and that he didn't intend to impose the ceremonies of the Church of England on them. The Privy Council said that if the charges were true, that they would be a problem, which would dishonor the kingdom and ruin the plantation, but most of the facts seemed to refute the charges, and even if they were true, they could only be proven by witnesses summoned at a great waste of time and money, which would push away investors who might suspect that the state was working against the plantation. If such things were happening, the Privy Council said. The fault lay with just a few men and probably not the leaders. 
so the king would maintain liberties and privileges and help the colony in whatever way he could. When the colonists got the message discussing the king's support for the colony, it was the first that they had heard of the controversy at all. And it accompanied a letter from the Earl of Warwick congratulating Winthrop on the prosperity of the plantation and encouraging the colonists to continue and offering his help. Winthrop was pleased with the report, but other leaders were justifiably concerned. And Gorges and his group were, in fact, continuing to push for their desired reforms. May also brought developments in the New England government. Winthrop, Dudley, and the assistants were, and the assistants were all re-elected yet again, and the government continued to grow and adopt laws which fit with its ideals. Time-wasting, for instance, became a criminal offense in this year. Things seemed to be going smoothly, though the court did note an issue with a captain named John Stone, who was half privateer and half trader, and shipped goods and commodities between the West Indies, Virginia, New England, and London. He wasn't a popular person in New England, though considered a disreputable person, and accused of everything from drunkenness to cannibalism. When Stone called one of the magistrates, Mr. Ludlow, quote, not a justice, but a just ass, he was fined a hundred pounds and banished from the colony on pain of death. The colonists spent the summer building, planting, and they learned that English grains like rye could, in fact, grow in New England. And in September, perhaps the most noteworthy event of the year happened when a ship called the Griffin brought 200 passengers, most notably Thomas Leverett and his son John, Atherton, Hugh, Haynes, Cotton, Hooker, and Stone. This signaled the resumption of the flood of migrants to New England, and it carried some of the most respected Puritans from England. Cotton, in particular, was widely revered, and in fact, Boston was named after his hometown in England because it was his hometown in England. Even within England, his sermons had helped to shape the Puritan movement, guiding the views of his, of his contemporaries, and it was one of Cotton's followers, John Preston, who had helped to establish the committee known as the Theophies for Impropriations, which raised the funds to buy the right to collect tithes, which helped them put Puritans in pulpits throughout England, and therefore spread their influence nationwide. Cotton had given a famous sermon when Endicott had first set sail, and he was immediately received as as the Boston church's teacher, and was ordained within a month. Within New England, he would become the single most influential guide of civil and, and ecclesiastical policy. Meanwhile, Hooker and Stone went to Newtown and gave the town the first minister of its own. Suddenly, the colony was witnessing unbelievable growth, in a given month, dozens of ships 
might bring hundreds of families into the Boston Harbor. And this rapid and massive influx of people was great in many ways. They brought supplies and there was strength in numbers. There would be no more starving times or wessagussets. They could find, they could experiment with crops and commodities. And the colony was on the verge of being able to create its own economy and its own base of wealth. On the other hand, this massive influx of people required a level of organization and a rapid expansion which hadn't previously been required, and it required people to take on more authority than they'd ever dreamed of in England. The new people needed new places to live, and one of the benefits of the new world was access to land not available in England. Not all of the land in New England was fertile either, so towns needed to start spreading apart and colonists needed to start finding new locations for people to move to. So they started to explore the area. And at this point, the French, Dutch, Pilgrims, and Puritans were all vying for the various areas of New England. And of course, there were the Native Americans, but in many cases, this didn't prove a source of conflict. The Natives certainly knew that they didn't have much choice but to accept the newcomers, who vastly outnumbered them. They were still recovering from the plague, and for the weaker tribes, accepting Englishmen could mean protection from stronger tribes like the Pequots and the Narragansetts. The other issue with the rapid expansion was that Puritans didn't necessarily agree with each other, even theologically. They knew what they didn't like, and they had moved to America to found a theologically pure colony, but more and more, there were questions about what that meant. People like Cotton, Endicott, Dudley, and Williams were all thoroughly uncompromising in terms of their beliefs but they didn't necessarily agree on those beliefs. And speaking of Williams, around this time, he moved back to Salem, where he took a preaching position. Plymouth had gradually grown alarmed at some of his opinions and practices. He was insisting on total and utter separation of church and state to prevent anything from conflicting with God's sovereignty and saying that it wasn't lawful for unregenerate men to take any oaths, especially ones of fidelity to the civil government. Meanwhile, he said there was no such thing as a Christian government, and furthermore, he was advocating for things like women wearing veils, both in public and especially in church services. On the other hand, Bradford did somewhat agree with Williams's notion that the English should be buying their land from the Indians instead of getting the right to colonize from the king, and the idea that there was no such thing as a Christian government. Still, it wasn't a good fit, and Williams moved to Salem, where he became a close ally of Endicott's. Williams and Cotton disagreed about things, though, while Endicott mostly sided with Williams, for instance, on the issue of women's veils. The debate between Endicott and Williams and Cotton 
got heated enough at one point that Winthrop had to intervene. It's worth noting here that the competition for resources between European powers is the reason is the reason that Williams's idea of buying land directly from the Indians wasn't a viable one. It would have been cheaper and more convenient in many ways, but governments backed their settlers' rights, and without a patent, they had no rights. <clears throat> it would have been cheaper and more convenient in many ways, but governments backed their settlers' rights, and without a patent, they had no rights. Colonization was expensive, and people needed some sort of assurance that their investments wouldn't be completely derailed by people who moved in and took over after all the hard work had been done. Imagine manufacturing an innovative new product today without a patent. <clears throat> without a patent. Investors needed that security before they'd risk their money, and people who wanted to construct model societies like the Pilgrims and the Puritans relied on that protection to defend those societies from people who didn't fit their vision. And this will absolutely become an issue in the course of New England history. And this type of conflict, illustrating the importance of charters and patents, will absolutely become an issue in the course of New England history. The next spring, governmental disagreement continued when Cotton proposed a code of laws that would create a strict theocracy in New England. It was rejected, but it was one of the series of long, stormy debates which occurred that year, and major governmental changes did happen. Watertown's resentment toward Winthrop and the colony's government had been festering since the govern had been festering since the governor had censured people for their political disagreements. They knew that Winthrop had overreached the rights allowed in the charter and that he'd been bypassing the general courts when passing laws and levying taxes. So, before the 1634 general court session, they led the charge demanding to see the charter. The charter stated plainly that the power over laws and finances rested firmly in the general court, not a small central government. Winthrop argued that the body of freemen had grown too large to effectively govern solely through the general court, but there was widespread resentment toward Winthrop's taking of power and the court voted Winthrop out and made Dudley and Ludlow governor and deputy. Furthermore, the court implemented a new freeman's oath and a ruling that only the court could raise money, levy taxes, dispose of land, or confirm titles. Winthrop's relative tolerance and willingness to make peace between opposing sides has carried had characterized his time in office as as much as his use of centralized power, though. And the election of Dudley and Ludlow meant that for the next few years, Massachusetts would be governed by people who were much more rigid than Winthrop had ever been. And 
Around this time, the settlers got alarming news from Connecticut. Captain Stone hadn't gone directly back to Virginia when exiled from New England. He was a privateer and a traitor, not someone particularly tied to a single location. He had been with a small crew of people from Virginia and Massachusetts, as well as two Pequot guides, directing trading with the natives in the Connecticut River Valley, and he was preparing to do some trade with the Dutch. The whole crew, however, had been murdered by their Pequot guides as they slept. An Englishman from Maine had already been killed over winter while trading with some Indians, and the instant and the incident with Stone was nothing less than alarming, especially because it was done by the strongest tribe in the region. And to make matters worse, it wasn't long before they got a letter from Thomas Morton. Morton was writing to someone who he had considered a friend and an ally while living in New England, but that man had become a freeman and had given his loyalty to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, so... When he got the letter, he took it directly to Winthrop. The letter boasted that though they had had some setbacks the previous year, thanks to the agitation of Morton and his colleagues, the king had gotten involved into the investigation into New England's government. They were preparing to take over the colonies, divide English America into 12 provinces, with one England-appointed official sent to each, with the power to disperse that colony if it got out of hand, and that Borges would be in charge of the entire endeavor. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.